1: To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss. That's plushcare.com weightloss.
2: Hello, and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. I'm Ben Eshmaid and on this week's edition, we travel back in our archive and rediscover one of the center's most ambitious festivals, at a time when musical genres were in flux and people were hungry for something new. The Barbican celebrated Steve Reich with a marathon weekend of music entitled Reverberations. On May 7th and 8th 2011 in the Barbican and around the corner in LSO St Luke's, the venue celebrated the composer's 75th birthday reverberations included the european premiere of his string quartet wtc 911 the uk premiere of his malik quartet by the Dirt quartet and another uk premiere that of the pulitzer prize winning piece double sextet by eighth blackbird and not forgetting the london premiere of two times five by bang on a can it was a busy weekend Looking back in 2020, nearly 10 years after this episode was originally made, we can say now on reflection that the decisions made in regards to the artists to speak to didn't do enough to address diversity across gender. Bearing that in mind, we move back now to
3: 2011.
2: In Reverberations, The Influence of Steve Reich, we weave together a tapestry of words, sounds and ideas from some of the artists that travelled from across the world to be part of this weekend. We focus on how they were indebted or influenced by minimalism, including contributions from David Harrington from the Kronos Quartet.
4: I I just thought it would be interesting. I mean, you know, this is his 75th year. Um, Could he write a bookend to different trains? I had no idea what that might mean.
2: Bryce Desner of Clogs and The National. You know, the number of kind of like really seminal
1: works where he's, you know, done something that no one had done before. It's, it's, it's kind of shocking.
2: Owen Pallet. I, well, I would walk 10 miles to see any new piece of Steve. Tyondi Braxton.
5: I think history will be very kind to him. Um, in the sense of what he's
6: brought to the table.
2: And, of course, Steve Reich himself.
6: Greater composers than I have died unknown and unloved. Fortunately, um, there's, a, there's a large chunk of the musical community, both classical and popular, seems to enjoy it and uh, have to think about it. You know, all I can I, I like say is I'm very fortunate. I
3: had to,
7: like, open the bruise up and let some of the blues' blood come out to show them... I had to, like, open the bruise up and let some of the blues' blood come out to show them... Come out to show them, 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 Come out to show them. 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 Come out to show them.
2: Let's first start with a few other artists who are at the fringes of this series, but whose music has now very much entered the mainstream, starting with composer Max Richter, who first encountered Reich's music via his Milkman.
0: All the all kind of my first sort of new music hearing was really via our Milkman, who was um, kind of really uh, into experimental music and was a sort of musician himself. And, and he used to drop in uh, Philip Glass, Vinyl. Uh, and early Reich records and early UCM and stuff with the milk. and So when I was a teenager, I was getting all this amazing new music kind of delivered, <laughs> which was fantastic. So I came across this stuff really quite early on. Obviously, one of the big influences that Reich had on me personally was that, more like as a performer, Working in piano circles, you know, I I've, uh, did a lot of, a lot of performances of his work. It's in the hundreds, I think. Um, a lot of six pianos, the sextet, or the percussion pieces. You know, anything with a keyboard in it, basically. Um, Four organs. We played, we played. You know, just for years and years and years. And so I kind of got to know it really from the inside. And also thinking about, you know, his band and the whole idea of a composer having a band obviously writing class and these guys are sort of doing this really way back you know now that uh, so many composers of their own groups are playing their own material it seems kind of an obvious thing to do but really it was brand new and the idea of sort of taking your music on the road but it, it was kind of a revolution
2: Now, the sadly passed away Icelandic composer Johan Johansson.
8: One of the first pieces that I that I heard by Steve Reich was some of the earliest pieces like Violin Phase and um, and It's Gonna Rain and um, and those sort of tape based phase pieces and I, I remember being really fascinated by those uh, those pieces, especially uh, It's Gonna Rain. And one piece in p- particular had an effect on me, which is Four Organs. The, the combination this combination of of these shifting mel patterns you know this really hypnotic quality and the the combination of that with the with the, the shaker with this sort of metronomic shaker beat was 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 something really strong for me and it, it actually inspired me to to start the the group Apparat Organ Quartet which is my kind of side project so that so four organs is kind of uh, directly responsible for that my uh, I think it's more apparent in in, in things like uh, Organ Quartet, for example, than in my solo work. But you can still you can still hear it. I mean, it's kind of like a you know, it's part of that. I'm, I'm, I think I'm very much standing on the uh, on the shoulders of this sort of minimalist you know uh, school of, of music, you know. And and uh, so it's 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 nice to to be a part of this festival in that sense
2: and Dusseldorf prepared piano artist Hauschka, aka Volker Bettelmann.
9: Um, The first time was in 2007, when I was on tour with Moom, the Icelandic band in America. I um, had one show by myself in Wesleyan University, which is uh, in Connecticut, and uh, Wesleyan University has a professor teaching there. His name is Elvin Dussier, who's a composer, especially for electroacoustic music, but also he was good friends with John Cage, Steve Reich, Meredith Monk, um, all these guys that were at the same time doing like a lot of experimental music. And um, so he was doing a lecture, and I went with my cousin to the lecture of him, and he was playing Steve Reich's different trains this evening and he was talking about it and I was really touched because it also was connected with the German history because one train is going from Berlin to Auschwitz and so there was also quite a like a deeper connection in terms of um, the history historical background of Steve Reich so I was really uh, in touch with that. The music was very similar to how I feel about music. Um, the repetitive stuff. What I really liked was, especially on different trains, because uh, the two trains that are described in this piece are have one. One is more like a very has a very deep, more sad meaning, and the other one is more like a happy, uh, not a happy, but a, a bit different, a different train actually. And um, what I liked about it was the, the little nuances that he was using for changing actually the the whole feeling inside of the piece and the, these very slow developments and uh, little changes that actually made everything different. I love that so much um, that I straight away fell in love with it. And that it was on this tour, I came a couple of times across his compositions because sometimes the string quartet was opening for us and they were playing actually the full on uh, different train piece or so. On this whole tour, I was constantly getting in touch with his music, and um, that's how I actually got in touch with, with him as a composer. If I want to celebrate my 75th birthday in uh, uh, 25 Thirty years. (laughs) I want to have. I would love to have a a concert or a festival like that. Um, That in in, is not like a a whole whatever. People are just talking about my music rather than inviting young talents and whatever people that are um, you know have all sorts of different angles to uh, to um, contribute. And on the other side, who are connected with my kind of music. That's something that I totally. uh, I think that actually fits perfectly to Steve Reich's music because the music um, reflects, um, for me as well, very open, an open field and um, uh, quite an open mind.
2: Next, on this edition, we talk to David Harrington, the founder of one, if not the most important ensemble to champion Steve Reich's music, the Kronos Quartet. The quartet premiered his new work, WTC 911, a continuation or a bookend to the ideas started in different trains. They performed this alongside work by Scott Johnson, Michael Gordon, and Bryce Desner, who we'll hear from later. So I caught up with David Harrington and asked him about the impact Steve Reich's music has had on him and the quartet. The
3: first-
4: that I heard of Steve's was uh, music for 18 musicians. And, and that piece just blew me away. I, I remember uh, when my children were very small, playing that uh, frequently in the house. And uh, it, it was just perfect and wonderful. Eventually, Steve came to San Francisco and he and I met. And uh, at that point, he had, not written any string quartet music and didn't really seem interested in, in writing any. But he said, you know, it'd be, it'd be cool with him if we wanted to play uh, Vermont Counterpoint, which is the flute piece, and, and uh, you know, make a version for ourselves. And so I looked at the score, and it, it just didn't seem like it was a, a piece for us. But in the meantime, we, we started playing clapping music. And in fact, we opened a, a concert in San Francisco with clapping music. And uh, you know that piece, don't you? You know, that, that rhythm and, and then uh, two different pairs of, of uh, rhythms are going on at the same time. It's a very vibrant piece. So then I, I wrote a letter to Steve after after that and told him we had just played his first string quartet. And so the conversation kind of kept kept going and, and eventually he accepted a commission to write a new piece for Kronos and that be, eventually became Different Trains.
3: Eight, two, four, two.
4: I mean, it's, it's hard for me to imagine our concerts and and the, the form that they've taken and much of the music that has been written for us since 1988 without different trains because it, it really did totally change, you know, that, that one piece totally changed how we approached touring because uh, all of a sudden we found out that we needed to have our own sound engineer. And when composers started hearing what Steve had accomplished in different trains, it kind of opened up uh, a huge palette, all sorts of uh, possible colors. And um, I, I, I think that, that piece has had a big influence on the, the entire form of, of the string quartet. You know, wh- when I asked Steve to write another piece, I, I, I just thought it would be interesting. I mean, you know, this is his 75th year. Um, could he write a bookend to different trains? I had no idea what that might mean, except that emotionally it seemed like a it would be a, a fantastic challenge for him and certainly for Kronos as well. And he accepted the challenge, but uh, it wasn't until many, many months later that I found out what the topic of the piece
2: would be. More background now from the composer.
6: It was only because David Harrington of the Kronos Quartet said, you know, we'd like to have you write another piece that uses pre-recorded voices, that I began thinking, well, I, I had no idea what the voices would be. All I knew was that there was going to be an an elongation of the final syllable, believe it or not. That was the only idea in my head. In other words, if I said to you, he came from Boston, it would be, he came from Boston. And you could hold that indefinitely as a held tone. And then it could be doubled with a viola or a violin. And then the next person would say something, and their last syllable would be prolonged. And you'd start building up these chords, connecting people harmonically, as well as through their, their thoughts and what they said. That was the only idea in my head. I'd had no idea who was talking. It took me three or four months to finally said, "My gosh, I have unfinished business. I've never dealt with 9/11." So uh, then it finally became clear to me, and then I turned, as I always turn, to those who were in the event. By that I mean the traffic controllers who worked for NORAD who noticed that American 11 was off course and going south when it should have been going west to Los Angeles. The, New York City firefighters, who many of whom gave their lives uh, that day, uh, and whose re- recordings from the fire department are in the first movement, and then recordings that I made myself of of friends and neighbors who lived and worked in the area immediately surrounding the Twin Towers. Uh, one of which was David Lang, the composer, who says, uh, "I was taking my kids to school." Um, so it's a way of working which I worked in before in different trains and in the cave and in three tales where the people who are involved in a situation can convey the, um, the truth of that situation in a way that no one else can. And they can furnish the, uh, the, uh, the melodic, uh, the, mo- the melodies of their voices become the true expression of that event. And I am enabled to, be guided uh, in the right direction
4: i was taking my kids to school
3: the first plane
4: went straight went straight
10: over our heads Went straight over our heads and into the building.
2: What was the reaction to WTC nine eleven when you performed it earlier this year?
4: The reaction has been one of—I mean, it, it's stunning in, in, in the, the sense that you're you're kind of you almost can't believe that this that you're reliving that day in in a concert environment that I, that's the feeling i get anyway and um, so far uh, we've had three performances it, it's a major addition to to our work there, there's not even any question about that
2: i've always thought performing steve rush's music from an outsider's point of view seems challenging mentally and physically how have you adapted how have you approached this over the years
4: well i uh, <laughs> Steve and I did a talk the other night in in, uh, North Carolina and I told him something I don't think I'd ever mentioned before and that is that every time I play different trains I get this pain in my hand. It's kind of this residual I I don't know what you call it but it it, you know amputees get it (laughs) I think it is this pain that you you somehow your your body remembers and uh my hand remembers what it felt like to record different trains in 1988 with the, the hours of repetition of, the, of that, that figure in the first movement. And uh, so kind of surmounting that is, has, was something that uh, needed to be done, first of all. And um, there is a physical quality to his music. And, and you know, I, I was saying to him also that when we play his music in you know in Asia or South America or Europe Australia wherever we might be there there is an american quality to his music and there's also a youthful quality uh, he's a very youthful 75 by the way <laughs> and uh, it's quite unique in in music i would
3: say What's the
2: process between you and Steve when composing something such as this new work?
4: Well, the the, the thing to know about Steve's pieces for Kronos is that we can't perform them until we've recorded them. And so the actual recording that eventually became the CD of different trains, for example, was recorded before the world premiere. And the same thing is true of WTC 9-11. So about Gee, it would have been two months ago now, we were in the recording studio in San Francisco recording together. The recording studio becomes part of the composition. I mean, the, the, the act of recording is, there were a lot of things that got decided in, in the uh, recording sessions uh, that had been left kind of up in the air in, in the composition of the piece, and including uh, a number of the rhythms that we play, because these rhythms are vocal rhythms and, and so how to notate them is really, really sometimes very complex. And sometimes it's almost unnotatable and you have to just figure it out. And, uh, and there was, there were issues of scoring and uh, the, the kind of bow stroke that we might use and dynamics. And, and, and so it's kind of like fresco, the, you know, the, the, the final, uh, uh, um, really essential touches are made uh, in in the the recording session.
2: Your commissioning new work all the time, searching for new composers, maybe the new Steve Reich, and you've recently worked with Bryce Desner.
4: Well, I mean, I, I, I'm i not looking for the new Steve Reich. I, I'm looking for uh, individuals who are continually finding their voice in, in a very potent way. And uh, to me, uh, Bryce Desner's music is doing that, and, and uh, the two pieces that he's written for Kronos uh, so far are incredible additions to our work. Um, and Bryce would readily um, mention uh, Steve Reich's music as, a, as an influence. You know, when, when you hear, for example, Ahem, the, the first piece that Bryce wrote for Kronos, it has this propulsion and um, drive. definitely comes from his, his um, some of his other influences, as well as Steve's. And more recently, Tenebre, the, the newest piece, and the one that we will be premiering in London, reaches back to a much earlier time in music, and in fact is influenced by some of the um, Italian church music. The, I, I think Bryce is, a, is an amazing um, musician and, and someone who is, is you know, finding new vistas for his work uh, continually. Liberation.
2: There you had David Harrington from the Kronos Quartet talking about reverberations. They also premiered new work by composer and guitarist Bryce Desner. Bryce is an extremely talented individual who, alongside writing this commission and attending its premiere, will also perform with his ensemble Clogs. And of course, in his spare time, Bryce plays guitar in the band The National. We connect via phone to New York and speak to Bryce Desner about his musical journey to the festival and the impact and legacy of Steve Reich.
1: Um, I think I heard Steve Reich's music for the first time, um, you know, probably in, you know, the early 90s. Um, I was into Pat Metheny, actually, and I heard um, Electric Counterpoint was probably the first piece that I was aware of. And as a guitarist, you know, it's it's really a major work, you um, the electric guitar and such an incredible piece. So that was my first introduction. And, you know, I, I ended up studying, um, you know, composition and guitar in and, and, and school and in graduate school. So for my generation, you know, the music of Steve Reich has become incredibly important. I think, you know, I've talked to Steve about it, and I think when he was coming up in the 60s, there were very few people who could even play his music, where now that what has become You know what at that point was so challenging and 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 kind of radical in terms of his approach has now become really you know in in a way you could call it part of the canon of like you know music that everyone has to learn so um that's that's the difference and i think you know i'm definitely part of the generation of people where it's the music of steve reich has had tremendous
0: influence
2: Is there a particular element that draws you back to his music?
1: I would say that it's um, the big, you know, if I say that simply, like simply put, I think it's, you know, Steve's use of rhythm is so inventive and so detailed that, you know, for a kind of for the current era of artists and people who've grown up, you know, largely listening to rock music where, you know, kind of steady tempo and repetitive patterns are part of the language the number of times he's you know the number of kind of like really seminal works where he's you know you know done something that no one had done before is it's, it's kind of shocking the number of influential pieces like that that there are
2: and do you think like yourself um steve rush is inspired by new york
1: i think the connection there would be that new york is um is such a cultural capital and that and musically it's such a diverse environment where there's just so many so many things in the air and I think that um, for Steve whether it would have been like you know hearing moon Dog or hearing bebop or hearing Morton Feldman or you know it's all these things that were happening in New York and you know for me it's hearing Steve rice or it's hearing um, all the great bands that are coming out of Brooklyn or it's hearing um, you know the the French gypsy guitarist I heard at a bar last night in Park Slope or it's hearing, um, um, you need open ears. And I think that, that's, that that would be what's the kind of, you know, I, I definitely um, have talked to Steve Reich a lot about, you know, music and music he's heard. And, and um, I think just in general, he's excited about music, you know, and that's and that's something that New York is certainly a great place to be for, you know.
2: On the subject of New York, let's hear now from Owen Pallet.
10: I think that there is an attitude in New York that is one of sort of mutual interest and mutual development.
6: In terms of kind of like a
10: cross the crossover between pop music and you know so-called highbrow music I I uh I don't think that it's anything new. I think that it, I think that the advent of the recorded medium kind of made things appear separate for a while but it's really not the case. Like I think that all of a sudden that records were created and then records became something you could sell Then all of a sudden, you know, there was like all this experimentation going on with like what these records were going to sound like and sort of like, you know, the look, what a guy looks like and how he's in this sort of posture of this music. But uh, meanwhile, you know, you know, the modernists were kind of like still really into what was happening in concert music. So anyways, I I don't think that there's any real separation. I just think that New York is just a really fertile scene and that, you know, a large part of that had to do with the composers there in the 60s and 70s, the so-called downtown composers, you know, that Reich was a part of, and really making an effort to kind of separate, uh, you know, the new music scene from being strictly existing in the academic sense, you know what I mean? Uh,
1: You know, for instance, in New York, uh, with certain venues, certain uptown venues, you still get people relating to you like like it's 30 or even 40 years ago, <laughs> you know, where it's kind of forgetting that someone like Steve Reich was even there in a way where they're saying, oh, well, you're, you're a rock guitar player, but you're right, you know, and it's like, um, you know, trying to kind of maybe pigeonhole things into being um, more square or simpler than they are when actually like, you know, as Steve puts it, it's like the music is in the air and it's been in the air for quite some time. And and the, 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 the boundaries between these things are, are quite porous, where you have someone like me who's classically trained, you know, where I, I grew up, you know, playing classical guitar and I read music well and I can play chamber music and I can write a string quartet and, and I don't lose sleep over the fact that, that there's, there's a kind of multiple identity in that. I think Steve Rice is really kind of like, he just bulldozed all those walls. He just said, you know what, we're, you know, we're moving on here. And, and I think that, that his music kind of um, is a rallying point for musicians from all all over the place you know stylistically I just found out there's a I run a small festival myself called Music Now every spring and there's a great band called Megaphone that's from Raleigh North Carolina that are just incredible singers and musicians and they um Someone just took a picture of Brad, who's as the as leader of Megaphone's arm, and it's a, it's a it's a Steve Reich tattoo on his arm. <laughs> it's the diagram for um, how the musicians should be laid out in drumming, and it was a really interesting just kind of anecdote about how, how this music is universal, and it's not necessarily about one kind of kind of ghettoized academic corner. So I like to say that, that new music is often often kind of futile, where you have these sort of like these, you know if you listen to Ty and Dave Braxton's music, who I love it's wildly creative and extremely different from anything i've done and i think that's a a good sign that actually these things are articulating themselves in diverse ways and
2: and finally can you tell me about um your involvement and clogs involvement over the weekend
1: clogs is performing two concerts the first one is at st luke's on the 7th and then i'll feature some older works written for the quartet of clogs which is you know the the four of us so some some music off lantern which is our fourth record and has um features bassoon and viola and I'm playing electric guitar I and mean, there's all, all different kinds of percussion we will then on on the 8th perform a big selection of songs off the recent record um, the Lady Walton record so that'll feature Cheryl Warden who's a, an amazing singer who's coming over and singing with us and it also features the New London Children's Choir and um, four new commissions that we just um, performed here in Brooklyn with the Brooklyn Youth Chorus and that that will feature a, a quite a big piece for me called Tori Fell which is a, a new piece for um, Clogs sort of like an extended ensemble Clogs plus string quartet um, and then in the youth choir so that's that's you know those two concerts and we're you know uh, there's also a, a new suite of songs by Kevin Newsom, who's the Australian um, violist and composer in the band as well so that's exciting so there'll be some you know Music that no one's ever heard before. It's not released on recording. I'm also uh, was commissioned to write a new piece for Kronos Quartet. It's uh, my second string quartet for them, and that'll premiere on the seventh at Saint Luke's. And then that evening at the, at the Barbican Hall, I'll be performing my older work as well. So there's two string quartets and then a bunch of stuff in clogs. And then it's a busy weekend for me.
2: next on this reverberations edition of the nothing concrete podcast let's spend some more time with violinist singer and composer owen pallet owen has won a massive fan base firstly recording music under the name final fantasy with his fame and acclaim spreading through his collaborations with bands such as arcade fire beirut and grizzly bear Near the time of the concert series, he released his album Homeland under his own name and reverberations would have allowed you the rare opportunity to hear a performance of the album in full, with most importantly, the addition of an orchestra, the London Symphonietta. To Canada, to speak to Owen Pallett, who I found was very excited to be part of this festival.
10: Absolutely, yeah. It's, you know, it's a real honour and really... Uh... Excited to be, uh, playing with the, uh, London Centenata and in the, uh, in the Barbican space. I mean, I've been to see a few, con- quite a few concerts there, one, uh, in a few times that I've been in London, you know. So, it's exciting. But I get excited with the opportunity to play with any sort of orchestra, you know. It's really, uh, it's really a privilege for me. the short list.
8: My blood is a red no we'll
2: the I was reading. Your father was an organist. Was music always there? Was it always going to be the path for you?
10: Much for my child, in my childhood, yeah. I kind of uh, developed a real, uh, you know, a real cynical sort of side, and also a sense of kind of moral duty. when I was a teen, and uh, so that I I, I, I I would have much preferred to, you know, go into a profession that I thought was honorable. Like you know, medicine, for example, and it was really kind of me at the last minute when I was applying to university. I was like, "Oh, I think maybe I'll, I'll do music composition because it seems, seems to me that there's like a lot of people out there that you know are better than me at chemistry, but you know, I, I'm pretty good at like parsing chords and doing that kind of stuff." So I went to composition school with that, like, no idea what what I was going to do with it, um, aside from the fact that you know I. Theoretically, might enjoy writing an opera, and uh, I'm still wrestling with every day, so i just kind of like, really music, huh? <laughs> I feel like there's so many more th- more worthwhile things you can do with one's life,
2: but. Have you had the chance to perform Homeland with an orchestra before?
10: Not uh, in its complete format. uh, I've kind of done, you know, certain songs just like fit really well, but then there's other songs on the record that that are long or really rhythmically complicated that um, I haven't really had the guts to kind of actually try and do with a bunch of musicians, so... You know, I've, I've been working to get a band together for it because uh, I kind of need to have, like, some of the musicians uh, who are really, really familiar with the songs to really kind of pull it off.
2: Could you talk about the themes and stories which run through the album?
10: There is a narrative, yeah, but I, I tr- really made an effort to kind of downplay it, you know? Like, right from the very beginning when the record came out, I was like, I don't want to actually talk about it just because I feel that it kind of explains itself just... Uh, in me listening to the record. Uh,
2: and would you like to do more in the future with orchestras after a project such as this?
10: No, playing with an orchestra is too stressful. Sort of like a real one-off thing. Um, I get offers sometimes, and I just just completely—it's going to make my hair fall out. <laughs> I do like the other I'm otherwise playing the songs using a uh, lap Maximus P and doing kind of like this multiphonic looping it's a pretty involved performance process that you know I've kind of had to actually spend like kind of the last year and a half really adjusting to you know what is required of me as a performer and just in the last year I feel like it's been really kind of working extremely well so having this suddenly kind of work with an orchestra is You know, it's a tall order.
8: (laughs) I will seek out my own satisfaction.
2: Are you looking forward to any other performance at Reverberations?
10: Well, I am most, I'm most—I'm really, really excited about uh, the Reich works that are on my program. But I'm actually extremely, extremely huge fan of Julia Wolfe, and I'm really excited that uh, I'm going to be able to see her work. That she's actually—it's actually on the same program as me, which is really convenient. But I mean, and of course, like I—I well, I would walk ten miles to see any new. Peace of Steve, so uh, it's really wonderful that we're going to be able to maybe just walk half
3: to see it.
2: thanks to owen for speaking to us just one more interview before we get round to speaking to the composer whose music powers the festival steve reich himself but first i speak to tyondi braxton the guitarist and singer who began his career with a warp sign band battles alongside many of the people we have spoken to he really does show that the world of rock and classical have now blurred and changed beyond all recognition He performed his solo album, Central Market, together with the BBC Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Andre Derrida. Let's start with if he remembers the first time he heard Reich's music.
5: Well, you know, I can't remember exactly like when, when exactly, but it was when I was really, really young. You know, uh, my father's a composer and I would often hear when I was really young, uh, a lot of Steve Reich's music being played throughout the house, you know. So there, you know, I'd like wake up in the morning my father would be listening to music and, you know, I'd wake up to like some, some kind of pulse happening, you know, downstairs in the living room. So it was just, it was in a weird way, kind of just like a part of my, a part of the fabric of my early life in a lot of ways. And, you know, as you, as a grown up, you kind of start to see different shades of, of what his music has been. So it kind of, I've been kind of lucky in that I've been able to see all these different shades, um, since being that I've started listening to his music so young, or was aware of his music uh, so he, when I was really young.
2: Tayondai, it may be obvious, but was your father a big influence on you?
5: Yeah, yeah, You know. Um, it's always inspiring to see someone have you know a deep passion and a, and a deep enthusiasm about something and when that person is also your father you know you're, you're suddenly you're in this environment where you have a uh, your blood relative showing you that life could be lived in this kind of way and that look how exciting all these things are you know so i really took to that and and you know it's like everyone you know everyone's inspired by their parents in some way shape or form i i would imagine when you're When you multiply that times the fact that your father's actually doing, you know, this huge transformative uh, kind of work in the arts, he made it seem really exciting and really inviting, so um, it allowed me to, to explore my own.
2: I think it's fair to say rhythm or the sense of pulse seems to be important in your work and was with the band Battles. Yeah, I
5: mean, well, in the sense that it's very loop-based, you know, when I was, when I was in like high school and college, I was in a bunch of rock bands and a bunch of kind of like really ambitious kind of progressive bands, you know, that were, that might have been more ambitious than we were actually good, you know. But at the same time, I really appreciated the camaraderie between you know, me and and the people I was playing with. When those bands ended, I realized how fragile uh, a band is, and I really wanted to find a way to be able to generate music myself and be able to, you know, continue on with my own work without having to rely on people. So I kind of stumbled upon, I bought a digital delay pedal, and I realized that if you have the feedback knob turned all the way up, it could kind of repeat almost indefinitely. And, yeah, so I started to kind of find myself in repetition and in loops and I, you know it was it was happenstance on one on one side of the spectrum on the other side um, it really did feed into my love for a pulse and some kind of rhythmic generation and it also allowed me to once I laid down some like a, a part or so I, I'd have to kind of come up with some kind of instant counterpoint I'd have to start thinking what kind of harmonic character can come to it so in that way, I did start to look to guys like Reich and guys like my dad and guys like um, John Adams, and David Torn, Robert Fripp, stuff like that. And so I slowly started to kind of hone in on that, on, on that way of working.
2: Is it fair to say from your perspective, the lines between rock, prog rock, and contemporary classical are now, feel, not there, or blurred? Well,
5: you know, I feel like I don't have the perspective yet to say what I've blurred together. I, you know, I, it's like, I, I, I think other composers would agree with this when I say that the kind of music that I write is just a, is a product of my interests, and, you know, I don't just listen to classical music or just rock music or just this or that. You know, I'm open to absorbing all different types of music and you know over my 32 years i've had my obsessions with this and that and the other thing so i hear those things that i've gone through in the music and you know I, those qualities are there of rock music of classical music of course and specifically are those the main ingredients i don't I don't know. I, I guess I don't see it that way, but I guess I can't argue if people say that they do.
2: So, with this solo album, you've had the opportunity to work with an orchestra. What was that like?
5: Yeah. Well, it's yeah, it's the second solo record I've done, but um, it's the first of its kind. I've never done a. I, I never actually went out and did a full-on kind of orchestra uh, piece as a record. And yeah, um, I'm I'm gonna have that performed. I think we're gonna do every piece on the record except kind of the more song like piece called J City. Um, I think every other piece we're going to do. And yeah, it's really, really exciting. You know, we just had a, we premiered it here in the States with the Wordless Music Orchestra and um, a core group of musicians, myself, and it went really well. And so I'm really, really thrilled to be able to bring it to, uh, to the UK, especially in the context of a festival like this. And with the BBC Symphony Orchestra, it's a huge honor to be able to work with a group like that.
2: So, lastly, back to Steve Reich. And what do you think about the legacy of the music he's written so far?
5: When, you, when you're talking about Steve Reich, you know, he, this is, he's going to be, he's going to go down, I mean, he's already gone down in history as one of the most important composers that uh, our craft has been lucky enough to, uh, to have. And he, he really is a special kind of composer. And I think that, I think history will be very kind to him um, in the sense of what he's, brought to the table. So, he's a real master, you know, he's a he's a master composer. So, how do you talk about a master composer? He's I think people recognize his contribution to his craft. <laughs>
2: And now we come to the final interview of the podcast and we felt very privileged to have time to speak to the composer of Clapping Music, It's Gonna Rain, Come Out, Different Trains, Music for 18 Musicians, The Desert Music, Electric Counterpoint, UR Variations amongst many more. One of the most influential composers in what became described as minimalism. But to start with, who inspired Steve Reich?
6: Well, I think when I first heard The Writer's Spring* by Igor Stravinsky at the age of 14, I think that really was the decisive factor in my wanting to become a composer. Uh, That such a thing, that such a work was possible, that such a musical language existed that I was completely unaware of at the time, uh, I think was, uh, if I had to pick one moment in time and say, you know, that's when I wanted to become a composer, that was the moment, and that was the piece, and that was the composer. Stavinsky, I think, he said that the only one who really understood the piece was Maurice Ravel, who said it's the musical organism. It's not just the rhythm. It's not just the harmonies. It's not just the dissonance. It's not just the tunes that are in there, although uh, they are mostly, many of them folk tunes, which Stravinsky denied, but of course they are, in fact, folk tunes. Uh, it's the whole work. I mean, the rhythmic part of it, of course, is what's talked about the most, and of course that did have a big impact on me. But it's just the energy, this organism that exists, uh, which is unlike anything that, which preceded it. Um, is well-known fact in, in musical life and musical history and uh, it just hit me when I was young at 14 and very impressionable and made an enormous impression.
2: And at an early age you went from learning the piano to the drums. What drew you from one to the other?
6: Well, I was again. This was at 14, and shortly after, I heard the Stravinsky. I heard bebop. I heard, but uh, well, I also heard uh, Jo Ann Sebastian Bach for the first time. But I heard uh, Charlie Parker, Miles Davis, and the drummer Kenny Clark. And I had a friend who was uh, uh, studying uh, studying jazz piano. He was way better than I was. And we said, "Well, we you know we ought to start a band." And I said, "I'm the drummer," and I began studying Roland Koloff, K-O-H-L-O-F-F, who. Was then uh, the local great drummer, uh, and uh, who went on to become the uh, timpanist with the New York Philharmonic. So, Dutch, um, at the age of 14, uh, I not only started listening to a whole bunch of new music, but I started studying percussion formally, and uh, so that was a very important year in my musical development.
2: And I believe you, as a performer, were involved in playing your own music for a long period of time.
6: Yes, I was involved in playing my own music with my own ensemble from 1966 to 2006. That's 40 years. And I still uh, am involved as a guest performer. I played flapping music last week in Amsterdam, and I will join the Ensemble Moderne to play uh, music for 18 musicians in a number of European locations, including Bonn and uh, Düsseldorf and uh, Krakow, Poland, amongst others. Oh, and uh, excuse me, at the proms as well.
2: Is it important or interesting to play the music from the sort of inside? Well, I
6: think most of the composers that we, quote, know and love were involved in the performance of their own music in some way, shape, or form. Stravinsky was the conductor, Bartok was a pianist, Charles Oz was an organist, and a lot of those organ tunes find their way into his music. Aaron Copland was the conductor, John Adams is the conductor, Phil Glass played in his own ensemble, Terry Riley's played in his own ensemble. Uh, I think that this is... uh, generally uh, a healthy sign uh, when you're involved in the practical side of it, because you learn things uh, from the performance of music that uh, you can only learn that way and which are stand you in very good stead in a practical sense. And basically, uh, good composers are very practical musicians.
2: Was it hard to find musicians to play your music, as it's quite challenging musically?
6: Uh, I had no problem finding musicians for my own ensemble. One good musician led to another. And as I said, by 1966, I had a trio. By 1967, I had a quintet. In 1970, I had 12 musicians playing drumming uh, and singing as well. Because one good player just leads to another. Uh, What you may be referring to is the fact that uh, up through, I would say, the middle 80s, I was very reticent about having other groups outside of my own play my own music, uh, because I felt that at that time, as you may re- or may not remember, uh, music was dominated by the aesthetic of a uh, Bouler, Stockhausen Berio and Cage, where you had uh, a no regular beat, no regular rhythm, no melody of any normal recognizable sort. No uh, harmony of any recognizable sort, and my music uh, relied on all of those. Uh, and a lot of people who were involved in that aesthetic looked at me as a as a lunatic. I knew that if I entrusted my music to their performance, it would be butchered. So I was held back. Fortunately, by the time uh, I guess a uh, uh, one of your countrymen, Bill Colloran, who's no longer with us, took a shine to my music and wanted to publish it for Universal Edition, London. Mm-hmm. And I did publish about five or six of my really early pieces uh, back uh, in the early 1980s. And then in, by 1987, I could sense there was really a, a larger community of people who were going to do very good performances of my music. And that's when I began working with Boosie and Hawks. And uh, that was one of the best decisions I ever made in my whole life. It's been a wonderful working relationship with Boosie. And uh, through them, my music is played all over the world. You can go to my website or their website, and you can see hundreds of performances happening uh, each year to people that uh, I've never heard of. <laughs> I mean, some of which I've heard of, but most of which I haven't heard of. And that's wonderful news. I mean, every composer wants to be played. That's, that's why you write the music. To see that happening and happening a lot is extremely gratifying.
2: And when were you aware that your music was traveling across the globe to such a big audience?
6: Well, it's all been very gradual. It's all been very gradual. So uh, it, it's uh, perseverance and uh, also, I mean, I guess I've written by now a number of pieces that are quite different from one another. And then uh, for different kinds of ensembles, there's a lot of vocal music, uh, a lot of uh, instrumental music, some music which still uses uh, pre-recorded electronic material collaborations with Beryl Coart uh, that are my contributions to musical theater. And so uh, I guess, uh, you know, I mean, obviously there, there are still people who are, uh, are not uh, particularly fond of what I do, but fortunately um, there's, a, there's a large chunk of the musical community, both classical and popular, uh, which is uh, really, really, that uh, seems to enjoy it and uh, and to think about it. Uh, and um you know, I, I like to say is I'm very fortunate. Greater composers than I have died completely. Un- Bella Bartok died unknown and unloved. I mean, he was a musician musician, and at, immediately after his death, with the, the conductor of orchestra, there was a the, the, you know a, a Bartok craze, and he became a you know a regular staple of the of the literature. Uh, but it didn't happen in his lifetime. It's you know it, it, it varies <laughs> enormously from case to case. Stravinsky was a success all his life, so you know. The, Every, every, every composer's uh, career or success or failure uh, is, is quite an individual case.
2: And given the chance... Is composition a daily ritual for you still? Uh,
6: It's a daily thing, uh, unless other things are in the way. Uh, Right now, this year is a very busy year of travel because of the uh, 2075 and uh, because of the kind of conversation you and I are having. I mean, shortly after uh, you and I talked to somebody coming from the London Times here, this year, uh, uh, as it was in 2006 when I was 70, there is more concert activity than usual and more travel for me personally, which takes away from the time available to compose. But normally uh, I would be composing uh, most afternoons and evenings. I'm a I'm a, I'm, a, uh, I'm a I'm a 12 noon to 12 midnight composer. I'm not a morning type. I have music notebooks that I've worked on since I uh, started composing and uh, I still use them, but I also use the, the computer and uh, I use the piano. And um, between the The notebooks and the the computer and the piano, it gets written.
2: And some final words and thoughts from David Harrington from Kronos Quartet.
4: Well, I I, I think it's, um, you know, his his music has influenced uh, Musicians in, in many genres and in many different uh, configurations of instruments and uh, voices and um, and I, I think it's uh, uh, fantastic to have a festival that brings some of these um, musicians together and uh, celebrates the um, the influence of, of Steve's work and and um, um, and in some cases. Uh, I know one of the programs that we're going to do. That, um, there are a couple of um, pieces that we'll be playing that um, also demonstrate some of the influences on Steve and Steve's work. And um, so there, there's nobody in the world that hasn't been influenced by someone else. <laughs> so it's uh, you know that that kind of fabric of influence and and um, sound and, and approach is is really a, a beautiful thing to think about and, and learn from I think stand
3: by, stand by.
7: The people, he said, after all, it's going to rain after all, before the days and before the night. And the people that believe him, and they begin to laugh at him, and they begin to mock him, and they begin to say, it ain't going to rain! And place him in the garden of Eden, to serve it and to keep it. The process is as follows.
2: I hope you've enjoyed this special reverberations archive edition of nothing concrete brush is a composer's composer as it's clear from the interviews you've just heard and to be able to hear these albums and works brought together on the barbican stage was at the time extremely special it was a crazy few days of impossible logistics and ambitious performance my thanks to oliver Shera for some extra production on the title jingle i'm ben Maid you're listening to an archive edition of Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. It's here to inspire more people to discover and love the arts with weekly episodes of archive finds and themed series. Subscribe to Nothing Concrete on ACAST, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you can, leave us a review to help us get the word
3: out.